I thank you for your word, Lord, that it is true, forever true. Holy Spirit, I thank you that you authored the book and that you're the one who can teach it the way it ought to be taught. So we ask, Holy Spirit, that you minister tonight to us what you want to say. Help us to hear what you want us to hear and to do what needs to be done with regard to what we've heard. Father, we thank you and we honor you. We worship you in the name of Jesus for your word. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen. Praise God. What do you think about revival? Think we need one? I remember when I was young, just a teenager, in my denomination, I mean, I was mostly heathen, to tell you the truth, but I went to church mostly to get under their skin because I hated the hypocrisy. Hated it. And so I would go just to make them mad. And I, my attitude was not right. The Lord has forgiven. I've had to apologize to a lot of people over the years. But in my denomination, I mean, we voted on whether to have revival or not. <laughs> I mean, we'd come together and my friend Joe Bob and I would go just so we could vote and mess them up. But they would always say, all in favor of having the fall revival in October. Let it be known by the uplifting of the right hand. All opposed by like sign, and certainly there are none. And that's just kind of the way they did it. And I thought, wouldn't it be great if it was that easy? All in favor of having a revival. Let's, uh, we could vote and, and, and we could just have one. And, and I realized as a young man that, that revival was nothing more than extra church. I mean, that, didn't, that wasn't a great thing in my opinion, that it, it wasn't a, a fun thing to go to. And, and the guy that was the preacher, would they'd sing so many verses of just as I am until somebody finally came down to the front and got saved. And I mean, you didn't have to get saved, you just had to rededicate it. Something, they had to do something just so they would have that. I mean, and the weird thing about that whole deal was you could vote whether you'd been, in, you'd been saved for one day or 24 years. As long as you were a member of the church, you got to vote. And my friend Joe Bob and I were members and we voted. We went to every business meeting and they preferred that we didn't, but it didn't matter. We went. We need revival though. We need a real revival. We need revival in America. We need revival. I was thinking the other day about Peter. I was thinking about revival. I was thinking about Peter. You know, Peter was a guy, the apostle Peter, he had everything. I mean, he walked with Jesus for three and a half years. He was very much the leader of the apostles. Very much he was the leader. He was the spokesperson. He was the leader. I mean, he was the guy who had the revelation that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. I mean, that was a guy who had everything. And then one day, Peter got arrogant. And he decided that he knew more than Jesus did. Remember when Jesus said, you're going to deny me? And Peter said, "Uh uh-uh. No, they may. But I will never deny you. And he got, he, got, he, got, he, got, he got arrogant, claimed that he would never stop following Jesus. He was so arrogant about it. And then when they came to arrest Jesus, he was still arrogant. You know, because he's the one who pulled out his sword and chopped off the guy's ear. Obviously, he was aiming for the guy's head. I mean, that's what he was going for. But he missed and hit his ear. It's probably a good thing he missed the head because he had been in prison on the day of Pentecost for murdering the guy. But Jesus reached out and fixed the guy's ear and, and healed him. He was still arrogant. And then all of a sudden, things didn't go the way that Peter thought that, that they ought to go. 
I mean, Jesus, before they had tried to kill Jesus, you remember that? I mean, he just, they, two or three different times in the scripture, it says that they, they would get, they would, were going to try to kill him, and then he just walked through them and got away from them. Just walked through them. And Peter's probably thinking, I can, I can be bold and brave and act arrogant and do all these things because Jesus is going to walk through them and get away. But he didn't. Because all the other times the scripture says his time was not yet. But this time it was his time. This is when they were going to take him and crucify him. And then at that moment, he became a coward. And he ran, basically. He didn't run. He followed. He's probably still trying to be brave, but he followed Jesus and denied him three times in one night. Three times that he even knew him. I mean, and then the Bible says he went out and wept bitterly. And Peter was a guy who, who was really, he had it all, and now all of a sudden he's got nothing. I mean, Jesus was arrested and then eventually crucified, and he's, and he's got nothing, and he's lost everything. Kind of like the church got arrogant, and it's lost the anointing, lost the power of God. And Peter, you know, he had to, even, we, we understand that in, in John 21, he went back in the, in the was going to go back and fish more, but he'd already decided before John 21 that, that there were, he might as well just go back fishing because he'd already lost everything. You know, he just lost it all. But isn't it interesting that when, when Jesus saw Mary, he said, but go your way and tell my disciples and Peter. That's what the angel said. Tell his disciples and Peter that he goeth before you into Galilee, and there you see him as he said unto you. Your disciples and Peter. It's funny. Peter, I'm sure he was, he was at the bottom. He thought, it, he thought it was too late for anything good to ever happen to him again. But Jesus Never forgot Peter. Never forgot him. Always had him in mind. Then they had the long walk after he caught the fish and fit him a fish breakfast and said, Peter, do you love me? And Peter said, yes. He asked him, do you love me? Yes. Peter, do you love me? You know everything, Jesus. You know I love you. But did you notice every time he told him, every time he asked him if he loved him and Peter said yes, he gave him an instruction to do something? Feed my sheep. Feed my lambs. Feed my sheep. Because the, here's what he was saying. We're going to talk more about this in a minute. If you love me, then prove it by what you do, the way you live, if you love me. But he never gave up on Peter. He's not giving up on the church either. I mean, the church over the years has grown arrogant. It's just arrogant. And, 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 and thinking that large crowds are the proof that she's doing something right. I heard it said one time, a clown can draw a crowd. Doesn't mean they're doing it right. Huge growth is not an indication of health because if a body is too big, it's not healthy always. And so they think that. And, 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 and the church, you know, claims power over the devil, but today, in today's world, most churches never really train people how to fight or or even enter in the fight and, 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 you know, misses more than makes contact in, in, in battle. And so many people think it's too late for America, too late for the church. But I believe that Jesus has never forgotten her. I believe that Jesus is still calling her. What we need is fresh fire in the church, a fresh move of the Holy Spirit, a fresh revival. You know, and, and I think about how, how did, how did we even, how did the church lose it? Remember, in the 70s, 
churches had power. I mean, we were talking a bit before about deliverance, and I remember being in church services that the whole church service was about deliverance. And the, they had, we had guest speakers that would come, and their whole ministry was deliverance. And I mean, they passed out buckets down the aisle in case, you know, you had to vomit out a demon or whatever they did. And I mean, all kinds of things were going on in those days because people wanted to be free, and the power of God was there. Every church service had miracles. We saw miracles all the time. People really, really getting healed really, really getting delivered, all kinds of things. There was power. I mean, that was through the, the late 60s all the way into the early 80s. We had those, the, the, the church had its power. But then after, in the 80s, things began to change. You know, they had these guys come out and they began to talk about church growth. And preachers began to look at church growth. But they also were looking at the world because in the world, remember in the 80s, there was all the opulence of wealth and wealthy people were in the news all the time. And in those days, Donald Trump was in the, in the news, not because he was the president, but because he was rich. And people watch shows about being rich all the time and they wanted rich, how millionaires lived and how billionaires lived. And, you know, they had shows where the guy's house had solid gold toilet seats and all the things that were going on. And the church had to compete with the world, they felt like. So they began to try to have this same opulence in the church. Remember the 80s? You are watching TBN in the 80s? I mean, they did a lot of good, don't get me wrong. But I mean, you looked at that stage and it was all royal purple and all the gold and all the stuff. And, and we began to tell people, we began to say, you're royalty, which is true. But that's not the message of the church necessarily. You're royalty. You are royal. Oh, just get saved tonight and you are royal. You're royal. And then the churches begin to try to compete with the world. What, here's the amazing thing about the 80s. When preachers preached on TV, every scripture that they found had something about sending them money. Do you remember that? And if you just send me money, you can have a Rolex watch just like me. You can have a new Mercedes just like me. And so we, we, the church got arrogant and it began, it began to, to uh, be all about money and all about amassing wealth. And that went on into the 90s and, 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 and people began to be more, they just wanted all that. I mean, I remember when I used to go to a pastor's conference, they would say, they would say, how many people in your church? They don't ask that anymore. Now they say, how many campuses do you have? Because it's all about that. It's all about the number of campuses, the number of cities. We got out of this opulence into a more, a more uh, uh, people-friendly type look, but it's still all about how big it gets, how big a kingdom I can build and what I can do. I mean, these same churches, I just know from experience, they swallow up little churches, take their properties, reassign their staff, put their own staff in there, and change everything just in order to establish and make it, make it get bigger. Ministries began to focus on building their kingdoms and, 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 and they never preach anymore about repentance and the need to surrender to God. And that continued through the 90s and into the 2000s. And today, here we are. I mean, in churches today, there are these feeble attempts to conjure up excitement. But it's just hollow. People shout 
spiritual warfare buzzwords, but there's no impact. It's just harmless shouting. The church today is like Don Quixote. Remember the man of La Mancha? And all he did was fight windmills. He never fought real battles because we've taken Christians off of the front lines. The first thing the church needs to do is take the first part of 2 Chronicles 7.14 to heart that says, if my people will humble themselves. The church needs to become humble again. It needs to invite Jesus in and repent of having invited him out. Because not because we said, go away, Jesus. We just, we just didn't focus on him anymore because we weren't in love with him anymore. Mostly the church has forgotten what I call the why of what. Remember the story of Esther? She was like Peter. She had it all. She had money. She had fame. She had comfort. She had everything you could ever hope to eat, drink, wear. She had everything. She had it all. That was the what. The difficult part was to come to grips with the why. Why did she have it all? Why did God put her there? The Bible says in Esther 3, verse 13, Then Mordecai commanded to answer, answer Esther, Think not with thyself that thou shalt escape the king's house more than all the Jews. For if thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time, then shall their enlargement of deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. But thou and thy father's house shall be destroyed. And who knoweth whether thou art come into the kingdom for such a time as this? The why, the what was all the stuff. But why? Why did she have all the stuff? See, the church has forgotten her why. Why are we saved? Why are we baptized in the Holy Spirit? Why has the Lord chosen us? Why is that? We know that He has, but why? What are we supposed to be doing in the meantime? I mean, the what is the blessing and all the stuff, but the church has forgotten the why. Why do we have that? Psalm 107, verse 3, the Lord told Israel, He made known His ways to Moses, His acts to the children of Israel. The acts are the what? Moses knew the why. He knew God. He was in love with God. I mean, they focused on the what, and they griped, and they didn't get all the what they wanted. They complained. Moses knew why. He knew why. If Esther had failed out to find her why, she would have faded into obscurity, and we would never have heard of her today. But she figured out why she was here. Our what is the baptism in the Holy Spirit. But the why, by and large, has escaped the church. We've buried it under a pile of what I call charismatic traditions and Christian consumerism. We have, been, we have received this baptism in the Holy Spirit and there's a purpose for it. We need to learn how to use it, learn what to do with it. The church is kind of where those, those four lepers were in 2 Kings 7. Remember that story, how they were sitting in the front of the gate and they said, you know, if we go in the town, we'll, we'll die. If we stay here, we'll die. If we go to, to the Syrians, we'll probably die. But they might save us somehow. They're four lepers. And so they finally got up and went to the Syrian camp and they got to the Syrian camp and the Lord had caused a commotion to happen. They thought they heard a sound and they all ran off and left their food, left their clothes, left their treasures there. I mean, these Syrians, man, they found that, that they'd all been run away. And so, man, they get there, they buried clothes and buried treasure and ate the food. They're putting on the clothes, they were doing all the stuff. And then finally they thought, wait a minute, 
This isn't right. This is in verse 9 of, the, of 2 Kings 7. Then they said to one another, We do not well this day. This day is, is a day of good tidings, and we hold our peace. If we tarry till the morning, morning light, some mischief will come upon us. All of a sudden they realized why they were there. They were there to save a city. They weren't there for their own consumption to get what they wanted out of it. They were there. The church today has to realize why. Why are we alive in this day? Why are we here? I mean, we live in a nation that's cursed with a cancel culture and the evil of sexual perversion. The church is beaten up every day by violence. People are, are, are killed and murdered. We're bludgeoned by this violence and there's drowning crime and godliness. We must realize that as of now, our witness has failed. It would be a great time to say Amen. We'd better wake up to the reason that we're filled with the Holy Spirit. Here's the deal. The Holy Ghost is in me and in you for such a time as this. And it's not ours to just sit and complain about the Democrats. The power of God within me, within you, is not only able what's supposed to be flowing through us in this time. We need to be people who, who express God. And, and, and we need to learn how to minister to the wounds of our nation. In church today, we've created a bunch of high-maintenance, low-impact Christians. I mean, we... we the church's ministry is dying because of that. These people, people today in churches are born arrogant and weak because they've been preached some sort of genetic theological engineering. And it's not in the Bible. They're, te- they're taught all kinds of things. They, they, they've, they've never felt the sting of real repentance. They're just told, come down here. Come to Jesus. He's got a good plan for your life. And he'll give you whatever you want. No, there's repentance first. There's, there's faith in repentance. I mean, they, 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 and they've never experienced a true resurrection because they've never died to themselves. They get the buzz, the feeling for a few weeks, and then that's all. The church today boasts of great authority. And Christians, they, we have authority over that. And then they crumble at the first sight, first hint of adversity. They know all their biblical rights, but not their spiritual responsibilities of what to do. Man, teachers have have taught them with disastrous misconceptions. Victory has been taught no longer as a matter of contending, but escaping and avoiding pain. Anytime, Anytime you say, you know what, you might have to fight for something, they dismiss it with, I don't receive that. I don't have to have that. Psalm 106 verse 13 says, they soon forget his works, they waited not for his counsel, but lusted exceedingly in the wilderness and tempted God the desert, and he gave them their request, but sent leanness into their soul. I think the church today has leanness in its soul. Not all the church, not 100%, but you know a large portion of it does because we don't see the power of the Holy Spirit most of the time.
We don't see Christians living the Christian life 24-7 like they ought to. We don't see that anymore. We need revival. For us to have revival, we must get hungry for Jesus once again. We must hunger for him. We must want him more than anything else. We must fall in love with him, must fall in love with him alone, not the things he does, but love him with all our hearts. Even if we don't understand what's going on, we need a revival. We must fall in love with Jesus. Now let me read you another passage of Scripture. We'll try to get something more fun here in just a second. John chapter 14. I'm going to read verse 15, verse 21, and verse 23. This is Jesus talking. Now listen to what he said. I said we must love him. We must love him. Here's what Jesus said. If you love me, keep my commandments. That's an interesting statement. Today on Christian radio, not radio, on Pandora station I listen to, I heard two different songs that said stuff like this. All I can give to him is hallelujah. All I can give to him is this song. Baloney. All I can give to him is my life. He said, if I love him, I will keep his commandments. That's way good right there. Verse 21, he said, He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. And he that loveth me shall be loved of my father, and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. We need a manifestation of Jesus, don't we? We need Jesus to manifest himself in our midst. He said, if we love him, we will have and we will keep his commandments, his word. And he said, it's, it's interesting. He that loveth me shall be loved of my father. Doesn't God love everybody? He's talking about a manifestation of God's love in your life, in my life, if we love him. He said, I'll come and I'll manifest myself to him. Verse 23, Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. That's pretty nice. He said, If a man loves me, he'll keep my word, and the Father and I will come and live with him. That's what revival is going to be. When the church grabs hold of what I just said, how can we know that we love Jesus? He just told us. Too many times as a minister, I've heard this from somebody who's going through a hard thing. And they say, and their, and their question is really, why is God letting this happen to me? But this is how they begin it. Well, I love the Lord. I love the Lord. How do you know if you love the Lord? How do you know? Is, is, is loving God a feeling? Before I started the sermon, I talked about going to youth camp. When I got home, I had a feeling and I loved God. And that was my feeling. I loved God. When the feeling went away, I probably said I loved God, but I didn't act like it, that's for sure. 
How do we know we love God? You see, it's more than just a feeling, more than just the preacher doing what I want him to do or making me feel something. It's more than the worship leader singing a song that moves me into something. It is simply doing what he said. I prayed for people in prayer lines in modern churches for too long for them to come and they're, they're, they're up there and they're, and they're saying, they're saying, oh, I just, I, just need, I just need you to pray for me. I need for my living boyfriend to treat me nicer. Why? I realize people are ignorant. I get it. And they've never been taught. But when the church doesn't teach the reality of what that's going to cause, you're going to have people that are high maintenance and low impact and they'll never move beyond where they are. Oh, would you pray? Would you pray for me? Would you pray? Would you just ask the Lord to make my, my children obey me? No. I would pray that you would teach your children what the Word of God says or get help with it so they'll obey you. Oh, my, my, my living boyfriend and I, we're having a hard time with our finances. We just can't make enough money to pay our bills. These are all true things that I've heard in prayer lines because the church isn't teaching these things. Isn't teaching what to do. Teaching to fall in love with Jesus by falling in love with His Word, by doing what He says to do. You know, I can't tell you how many people want God, pray that God will give me money. I have prayed that prayer before, haven't you? I was much younger and God said, okay, I will, just give me some first. I mean, he just, He's just like Elijah. Yeah, you bake me a cake first and we'll see what happens. And then when I, when I bake him a cake, it seems to work out just fine. When I learn what the tithe is, when I learn how to give to God what is God's. I mean, that's what's going on. I mean, revival will begin when we get hungry for Jesus. When we truly fall in love with him. We can see what loving Jesus looks like. It's not just an emotion that says, I love the Lord. It's the reality of keeping his word. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my word. The word keep means to guard, to observe, to keep the eyes upon. Loving Jesus is keeping the eyes upon his word and not upon your circumstance, not upon all the other things, looking at him, keeping your eyes on Jesus. That's why when Peter sunk in the water, it's because he took his eyes off of Jesus and he looked at the waves, the wind and the waves. And the waves were boisterous, the scripture says. And I always ask the question, what did that have to do with walking on the water? I mean, you know, you can't walk on the water if the waves are boisterous, right? You've got to have calm water to walk on the water. No, you have to look at Jesus to walk on the water. We have to look at, in this situation our country's in, our church is in, we must look at Jesus. Keep our eyes on his word. Loving Jesus is not so much about saying we love him, but observing the word. If you observe a holiday, that means you participate in it. We must observe the word. It means we participate in the word. We stay with the word. We keep the word. Man, our demonstration of love for Jesus includes having and keeping the word. We must have the word so we can keep it. The word have means to have, to hold, to own or possess. You must own or possess the word in order for you to keep it. Right? If you don't have it, you can't keep it. If you don't know what it says, you can't do what it says. And yet I'm going to tell you something. At my work, people ask me questions that children 
in Sunday school ought to know about the Bible because it is simply not being taught. I'm sure there are some churches that are. There aren't many if they're out there. You and I have the opportunity to begin to have and keep it. We must hold it. I mean, we must possess it. I mean, Mary, remember Mary told the servants, whatever he saith to you, do it. We need to be figuring out what he says to us and do it. The result of doing whatever he says, he said that in, in that story, he said, if you'll do it, in that story ends up with, and he manifested his glory to them. If we'll just do what he says in John 14, 21, he said, if we, he, if he, he will manifest himself to us. If we'll just do what he says, we want a manifestation of the glory of God, don't we? It's, we're making it too difficult. We're wanting it to come from somewhere. It's going to come from Him. We just need to be doing what He says and get serious about doing what He says. I know you know all this, but this is important to us. Not doing what I think the Bible says. What does it say? You know, people think the Bible says all kinds of things. You know, well, the Bible says everything works together for good. Those words are in the Bible. They sure are. But it doesn't say that. Well, you know, Jesus was the friend of sinners. I just now caught you off guard. Was he or wasn't he? Who said that? The Pharisees said that. And they were mad at him. Now, if you're a sinner, he's the best friend you'll ever have because then you're not a sinner anymore once you make Jesus your Lord. We make the Bible say all kinds of things it doesn't say. I mean, you can truly make it say a lot of things if you want to. But we need to find out what does it really say. We must become doers of the Word. And here's where many Christians get messed up. They think that knowing it is doing it. But only doing it is doing it. Well, you know, the Bible says this. You know, tell them, the Bible says this. Well, I know that. Well, then do that. Well, I know it says that, but there's no but. We just do it. It's not enough to have knowledge of what the Bible says. We must use the knowledge and do what he says. You can pray. You can soak. You know, a lot of churches have soaking services. You can soak. You can worship. You can read the Bible all day, but it's all useless if we don't do what he says to do. That's pretty good, I, uh, you know. Mark 8, chapter 31. Mark eight thirty-one, verse 31. In Jesus, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Now, how clear was that? It was very clear. He began to teach them. He told them exactly what was going to happen. And he spake that saying openly. And Peter took him and began to rebuke him. Now, you've got to be some kind of stupid right here to take Jesus and rebuke him. In other words, he turned him around from the crowd and began to rebuke him. But when he had turned about and looked on his disciples, he rebuked Peter saying, Get behind me, Satan, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. I mean, he was plainly telling them what's given. 
getting ready to happen. The Amplified says, and he said this freely, frankly, plainly, explicitly, making it unmistakable. I mean, Jesus told him it was going to happen. Peter did not like what the word said. Do you sometimes not like what the word says? There are times I don't like what it says. Love your enemy stuff. I, I don't like that very much. I want God to smite my enemies, you know, and call down fire and all that stuff. Peter didn't like what the word said. Imagine the kind of arrogance it took for him to turn Jesus around and say, you're wrong. That will never happen. I mean, yet, well, we're thinking, well, that Peter, he's just dumb. I mean, why would anybody do that? Anytime anyone disregards the word, he or she is rebuking Jesus. You just said, Jesus, you're wrong. I mean, to consider the word to be wrong or to think there's a better way is to join Satan. He says, <laughs> Jesus told him, and this is important, for thou savorest not the things of God. Savorest. That means to exercise the mind. It means to entertain or have a sentiment or opinion to have understanding, to be wise, to direct one's mind to a thing, to feel. It literally means to think. He says, you're not thinking the things of God. You're thinking something else. You're not thinking it. That very same word is, is used in Colossians when it says that we are, how does it say it? It says that we're to, um, in chapter 3, verse 2, we're to consider the things that, to, to, Things above. What, how's that verse go? Uh, I'll look at it later. But it's the same word about, about setting our mind on things above and not on things of the earth. That's what it's talking about. So Jesus rebukes Peter, and he had told him he's not thinking like God, but he's thinking like a man. Now that's a pretty big deal. He's thinking like a man is thinking in accordance with the world system. He's not thinking like God and having the opinion of the world is to have to not think like God and having the opinion of the world is to have the mind of Satan is what Jesus is telling him. You're thinking wrong. How does he know? Because he's talking wrong. And he knew that. Isaiah 55 verse 6 says this, beginning of verse 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call you upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Here the Bible says we're to, that wicked men are to or to forsake certain thoughts. Okay, now, if we're not thinking like God, then we're thinking like the devil, and we need to forsake those thoughts. And let him turn to the Lord, and he will have mercy upon him, and to our God, and he will abundantly pardon. The Lord says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain cometh down from cometh down and snow from heaven and return not thither but watereth the earth and maketh it bring forth in bud that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater so shall my word be that goeth out forth out of my mouth it shall not return to me void but shall accomplish that which I please and shall prosper in the thing which I send it to for you shall go out with joy and be led forth with peace the mountains and the hills will break forth before you into singing and all the trees of the field will clap their hands 
That passage said, certain thoughts should be forsaken. Which ones do you think? All the ones that disagree with the word. Now that's a process because you've got to take time in the word. Now that's what most Christians don't want to have to hear today is I have to do something. I mean, I'm royalty. I, I, I don't have to do anything. I mean, after all, there is grace. And grace makes it so I don't have to do anything. That simply is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible doesn't teach that grace means I do nothing. Grace only gets, gets on those who are believing God and operating what God's called them to do. That's where grace comes. We were saved by what? Grace through what? Faith. Okay, we, it's faith that, that drew the grace. When we believed, grace came and his favor came into our lives. Okay, the way for life to be full and have joy and peace is when we're thinking, when the thinking like the world is forsaken and we begin to think the thoughts of God's word, begin to focus on what God has said, begin to do what God has said. Because when we're doing what God has said, then we're demonstrating our love for Jesus. Isn't that good? We need to think and do what he said. That's when the mountains get removed. That's when the blessing is manifested in our lives. <coughs> Excuse me. His word is sent. How does he send his word today? How do you think he sends it? By putting the coffee t book, the Bible on your coffee table? Is that him sending his word? No, the only way his word is sent today is when you say it out loud. You just sent, he just sent his word. When you said it, that's how he's going to send his word. That's the word that is returned. It's, we speak it, and that's returned to us by our speaking it out of our mouth. God will always honor his word. We must learn how to think his word, say his word, and most of all, do his word. Jesus said we have to have the word and keep it if we're to love him and to have his manifestation in the church. Wouldn't it be great if we taught all new Christians what I just said? That they got to keep the word. There should never be a church service that goes by without teaching people from the Bible. Teach, not just subjects about the Bible. Teaching the Bible. Because that's going to be people's, people's ability to walk with God. The only way we're going to possess and own the word is to begin to think in accordance with what it says. The only way we can think that way is to renew our minds with it. And the only way we can do the Word is on a consistent basis is to have a mind that thinks what the Word says. Amen. All right? So we have to learn how to think God's thoughts. What are God's thoughts, do you think? His Word. Those are His, those are his thoughts. First of all, let me just tell you, the, your mind is not your brain. Many people think that the mind and the brain are synonymous, but your brain is a physical organ in your body. It's not an organ, but whatever it is. It's a physical whatever in your body. Your mind is not a part, is, is, is not that. Your brain will die, but your mind will never die, whether you live in heaven or in hell. First Thessalonians 5.23 says, In the very God of peace sanctify you holy, I pray. And I pray, God, your whole spirit, your soul, and your body be preserved blameless until the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Your, your, your soul is, is, is the part of you that has the mind in it. Let me just say, you know this. You are a spirit. You have a soul. You live in a body. 
Adam and Eve ate the fruit of the garden, and God said, In the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And yet they ate of it, and they lived hundreds of years longer, didn't they? So did they not die? They did die. They died in their soul and in their spirit. The word death in the Hebrew and Greek languages both does not mean annihilation. It means separation. And so when they ate of the fruit, they died. They were separated from God for the first time. And they needed to do something about that. On the day they ate the fruit, they separated. They died spiritually. Our soul is made up of your mind, your will, and your emotion. Your mind, your will, and your emotion. That's not your brain. That's your mind, your will, and your emotion. Okay, so we, we have to understand that. Just because the body, including the brain, is dead, doesn't mean that the mind no longer operates. When Jesus told the story in Luke chapter 16 of Lazarus and the rich man, the rich man went to hell and he spoke to Father Abraham from hell and, he, and Abraham spoke back to him from his bosom. In other words, their minds were engaged in a conversation even though he was dead and so was Abraham. All right, so we're talking about the brain. The brain doesn't have to be renewed. It's the mind that needs to be renewed. The mind, it's one of the scripture calls it the spirit of your mind. It has to be renewed. The only way to demonstrate love for Jesus is to receive and to receive his manifestation and his glory is to keep his word and we must learn how to put that in our hearts. The only way we're going to keep his word is to have our minds renewed. And you know these passages, I've read them to you before. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service, and be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. For I say through the grace given to me, to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. We'll never have sober thinking trying to think and fit into the world. We must think like the Word. They're intoxicated with thinking that is contrary to the Word. They're staggering. They're doing all kinds of things that are ridiculous and making no sense. Their world is upside down. Have you noticed that? Right is wrong. I mean, that's what they say. Wrong is right. It's, it's, it's all reversed. What used to be what used to be unacceptable is absolutely acceptable because they, 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 they've lost their minds. Ephesians 4.23 says, Be renewed in the spirit of your mind. When we renew your mind is you've got to think one thought at a time. We must forsake that thought, take up the thoughts of God because if we begin to think the word, we can do the word and that is, the, that is how we show Jesus we love him. Now I get it. Not everybody can know the word all in one day. You just got to start operating what you know. One day at a time adding one brick to, 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 your, to your new building at, at a time. Jesus said, take no thought saying. Our thoughts are taken by what we say. You know, oh, we're going to die. You just took the thought. I can never lose weight. You just took the thought. I, I hate it. Well, my, back, my back is just killing me. You just took the thought. Can your back kill you? I don't know. I guess they can pull out a dagger and stab you in the heart. I'm not sure how that would happen. You take the thought by saying it. And so we learn how to, to renew our mind. And we, and we war after the Spirit. I mean, we've got to fight the strongholds with our words. We, we do, let me just read that. 
For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war for the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Strongholds are thoughts that are disobedient. Strongholds are defeated by the mighty weapons. The mighty weapons is talking about the supernatural ability of God to accomplish anything. Strongholds of thought can only be cast down with words. The Word of God. Here's how you do it. You cannot stop a thought with a thought. You have to stop a thought with a word. I've done this before, but some of you haven't been here when I've done it. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to begin. I want you to do everything I tell you for the next few seconds. I want you to begin right now, counting to 20 to yourself. Ready, go. Now tell me out loud what your name is. What happened to the counting? The counting stopped when you spoke because you stopped the thought with your word. That's how you stop thoughts. You stop them with words. I mean, you, you, you have to understand, you stop thoughts with words, and if you stop the thought with the word of God, that is what you need to do. That's how we're going to demonstrate our love for Jesus and walk in love with Him. All our thinking is framed by words, ideas, and images. We replace the images of fear and failure with the Word of God. When we're afraid, when we're, when we're in doubt, we begin to speak what the Word says. Even if you have to say this, <laughs> I've done this before, at what time I'm afraid, I will trust in thee. That's what the psalmist said. He acknowledged the fear was trying to take him, but he refused to accept it. I will trust in thee. We have to learn how to, to take the thought. Adam and Eve thought they could gain knowledge from a source other than God. In other words, they thought they could take a bite of the tree of the knowledge, uh, for the, uh, for the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they found out that the knowledge of that tree contained knowledge that was separated them from God. It destroyed everything they had. In the day they ate thereof, they died. They died. They were separated. They were banished from the garden and God's plan for their lives. We must be renewed in the spirit of our minds. We must have this love with Jesus by listening to what he says and then doing what he says, simply obeying what he said. Jesus said, if we love him, if we love him, we'll keep his commandments. The only way you can keep them is to know them. We must know what he's saying. The true test of our love is obedience to his word. We'll never keep or observe the word unless our minds are renewed. The Lord told Joshua, This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein. The way he did it was he began to speak it over and over, and then he could do what it said. We'll never be able to observe the word, keep and observe it, unless we renew our minds. The church needs a manifestation of Jesus. We need to see a manifestation of the supernatural power of God individually and corporately. We must come to the place that we are owners and keepers of the Word. As we keep it, we'll have this manifestation of the baptism in the Holy Spirit and the power will flow through us. We'll do what we're supposed to do. We'll have our minds renewed. We'll naturally think the Word. I mean, we must do it on purpose. We must do it on purpose. Thinking and doing what Jesus told us to do. I believe we can love Him with all of our hearts. I believe we can demonstrate that as we hear His Word and, and keep it and, and, and do it. Father, I thank You for Your Word tonight. I thank You that we can keep the Word. We can see 
the manifestation of your presence in our midst. Lord, I thank you that we love you and we keep you, keep you in the forefront of our minds as we keep your word. I thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.